So words are very powerful. And Pastor Eric's passing out Bibles. If you need one, just raise your hand. Words are very powerful. And they elicit strong mental pictures, strong emotional responses, and even physical responses. If I say to you guys, Democrat, Tea Party, IRS, civil rights leader, pastor, what are you guys doing in your mind? Murderer, rapist, sunset, vacation, bonus check, police, trustworthy or not trustworthy. Today's passages of scripture has a power-packed word, slave. So before we read it, I wanted to prepare you in a couple of things because the word slave to this congregation brings emotional response. I mean, I can almost feel my stomach gurgling to think about slaves, slavery. But the context that we're looking at it in Exodus is completely different than what you and I would know as and what Alvin told me is called slavery, where it's a thing that we possess, not a person. The scriptures here are talking more of an indentured servant, almost an employee, where someone, for very often reasons, was unable to financially provide for themselves or their family, they would go to a landowner or a farmer and say, hey, I need help, would you There would be an agreement between the two of them, and it was that type of relationship. It was not the relationship that you and I would understand as slavery. So as we read this, I just ask that we all calibrate our mind to that. So if you guys want to read with me, Exodus 21, 1 through 6. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them when you buy a Hebrew slave. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go with him. If his master gives him a wife, she bears him sons or daughters. The wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall now go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. And if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not finish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Now, Brother Alvin and I often talk when one of us is getting ready to prepare a sermon, and especially when I am, because my tendency 
is to run pretty fast and gloss over the scriptures because I think there's some hidden points that I want to discuss. So we talk about that periodically and I want to tell you, I'm a bit nervous about that today because as we read these, I'm not confident enough in myself to be able to draw something from these six passages to give you apart from doing almost a topical study or what I see as inferred by the author. So I'm well aware of that. I called Brother Eric and said, hey, can I send you what my ideas are to make sure I'm on cue and on path? So I just wanted you guys to be aware of that. We're going to have, after we go through the scriptures, we're going to have four points of discussion. The first is what's called case law, and we'll get to that a little bit later. The second is going to be, why start case law with this particular discussion? There's always a reason. This just didn't happen to be the first thing that came to God's mind or the author's mind. There's a reason that this is first. And then we're going to talk about the word intent. And if you guys were here for Pastor Leon's sermon three or four weeks ago, man, he used that word intent, and I think he did a phenomenal uh, job of like defining that. And it, man, this thing has been stirring around in my mind ever since. And lastly, we're going to talk about principles and preferences. And for some of you Mac Avers, that might uh, be a familiar tune. So let's read the scripture. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. I see these six passages as just some practical ideas that God gives. There's liberty here, there's freedom, and there's options for both with a reasonable time frame. You see, the indentured servant had some restrictions as well as the master did. The master's responsibility was fairness and justice and mercy and employment and wages. He was to go out for free at that seventh year. No residual debt. End of a contract, as it were. And very often it could be very pleasant parting, as we'll see when he gives the slave an option to stay. Again, I just want us to renew our mind that this is not the same type of slavery that you and I would understand. If he comes in single, he'll go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go with him. This just seems like a practical room for clarity. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Face value kind of appears a bit cold, but I do think that there's a different definition that you and I know as a family of a family than there was back then. You got to understand, polygamy was still happening back then. So you and I would look at that and say, man, how could they? How dare they? God was developing in his people his plan for one man, one wife, and what a family is. God's still shaping his people. And there's an allowance for the family staying together, again, both employer and employee, master and slave had liabilities and responsibilities here. 
When a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her, onus being on the master. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter, the rights of a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Again, there's a redemption component here, not allowed to sell to foreigners, the component of the master having uh, specific demands on him. Again, it, you look at, they would be the same rights as a daughter, and just because the guy took an additional wife did not diminish the first wife's uh, gleanings from her husband. So as uh, I read through some commentaries, I read, I prayed, I read the scriptures, I read the commentaries, I prayed. I see an inference by the author here that the text appears to be meant to develop a character of mercy and justice where the slave has clearly defined rights and not solely a set of rules. God's character is expressed. Think about the Genesis study a couple of years ago. What was one thing that kept happening? God kept saying to Israel, I'm going to grow you and turn you into my people so you can be a blessing to others. God is developing his character in the Israelites here by showing them proper ways to treat slaves. So first of all, case law. Again, as I was reading the commentaries, case law, we live and deal with abstracts quite often. The Ten Commandments in some, in some component were abstracts to the Israelites. So do you remember a couple weeks ago, same sermon, Pastor Leon Shaw, he says, man, I love desserts. And then there's an example of somebody brings him a dessert, Pastor Leon's ready to dive in. He says, oh, wait, I, I got a question. I forgot to ask you. Does it have peanut butter in it? Yeah, it does. Oh, man, thanks for your heart of caring for me, the intent. You were to bless me, but I can't eat it because I'll explode. I'm allergic. So there needed to be some clarification, right? Abstract. If I said to you, I love my wife, Betty, and then I say, I love food. Those of you who know me know those things are both really true. But in your mind, you've already deciphered that there's two different kinds of loves there. I love food because I love the taste. I love to see when these guys prepare it and all the different flavors. Man, I, I love that. But it meets a physical need. My wife meets completely different needs. There is an emotional bond. There is a physical bond. There is a spiritual bond. There is a soulish bond. She's my counselor, my best friend. She's the love of my life. She corrects me. And those two loves are very different. So again, I hope you guys are understanding the abstractness of love and food, the abstractness of the word love, really defi different definitions there. This is case law. It's an example of how to treat slaves. It is not meant to be exhaustive, but it's a guideline. 
So you guys answer me a question and literally call it out. Why was the law given to man? Why was the law given to Israel? Huh? To know how to obey God. Okay. Was it just a set of rules that we could check them off and say, hey, God, here's my report card. I'm righteous. Of course not. Shayla said, show us our need for him. The whole point of the law was not a checkoff list so we could declare ourselves righteous. It was to show us our sin, our inability to please God and his standard of righteousness and to point us towards a savior. So point number two, why is this the first example of case law? Slaves? If there was anyone who should have had a heart of compassion, mercy, social justice, dealing with slaves, don't you think it would have been Israel? Got out of 400 years of slavery. Again, different kinds of slavery, ideas in context. They were mistreated and abused. They died. They suffered. They worked ridiculous amounts. They couldn't worship. Their families were destroyed. Think about that and how Israel tasted that for 400 years. Don't you think the first response when God says about loving your enemy like or loving your neighbor? Oh gosh, I, I got to take care of my servants. Wouldn't that be your normal first response? So why does God do this? I think it's exactly because Russ brought it up earlier. He is saying, I want to remind you guys, your tendency is to do evil apart from me. There is none righteous. Wait, Lord, no. No, not one. So we're going to start with what should be the most obvious thing for Israel, how to treat others to show Israel, hey, we're starting right here. You are wicked and evil in and of yourselves. I'm going to show you a righteous way to live via some case law instruction. One thing I want to go back, examples can nail points home. Example is a specimen, a sample, an instance used as a model or an illustration of a generality. Examples clarify abstracts. They put faces to names. And they're the how-tos that give actions to words or ideas. Pastor Leon had to clarify, I love desserts, addendum, no peanut butter. It was an abstract, there was clarification. That's the whole point of example, that's the whole point of case law. So let's talk about intent for a little bit. I'd like to read through Psalm 119, 97 through 105. The wicked lie and wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen the limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. 
for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditations. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I think there's like a main idea here, and then there's like the outplaying of the idea. The main idea that the psalmist is saying is words, your rules, your laws, your commandments, your precepts. Guide my life. When there are specifics, I will follow those specifics. But something something happens here where the psalmist is saying, in my meditation, I grow wiser than the aged. The point of this is he's taking all of these checklists He's mulling over them. He's sifting through them with his palate, with his mind, with his heart, with his spirit, so that he knows how to live life. Not only by following the rules, but when there are no rules, I know how to live because your meditation makes me therefore hate every false way. There wasn't a list of every false way. But by meditation on the precepts and the laws, he gained understanding, realizing how palatable God's word is to him and how much he will hate every evil way and how the lamp, what does it say in Proverbs? What does the fool do? Walks along, runs right into trouble not paying attention because he doesn't have the word of God as a light before his path. You and I have light. As that light shining force, we're walking down, we say, oh, okay, I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go the path of righteousness. I'm going to go the narrow path that God has set before me. So, condensed, these are probably not only meant as specifics. God commandments were to be adhered to. But more importantly, to give training for character development. The whole thing I just went through, understanding, wiser, lamp, light. Therefore, my meditation, your words are sweet. It's one thing to obey rules. It's another thing to have understanding derived from meditation on God's word that my life is driven and ordered by intent the Holy Spirit, and circumstances. 16, 17 years ago, Betty, myself, my son James, Martha and I are on vacation. We're out east. James gets a terrible sunburn. And man, he is scratching his back 
like there's no tomorrow. He's crying. He's taking a shower. We're putting aloe on his back. He's crying out to Jesus. Man, he's freaking out. Finally, it's like, we got to the hospital. We jump in the car. I'm doing 100 miles an hour down a little two-lane road. Cop pulls me over. Man, dude, what are you doing? Explain the situation. He says, can't have you driving 100. Calls an ambulance. Ambulance comes. Benadryl. Hallelujah. He should have given me a ticket, right? Spirit of the law. I'm sorry, letter of the law. 100 miles an hour, driving, ticket. He didn't give me a ticket. Why? Because he had meditated on the laws of the land and saw what my intent was. Does that make sense? I think this is another great example. Think of when the Pharisees brought the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery to Jesus. What does it say? It says, they came that they might test him. They didn't want to know the answer. They could care less. It was just some prostitute. They already had the answer. Why didn't they stone her? Because they wanted to see what Jesus was going to do. And what did did he say, hey, you got the law, go for it, stoner? No. What did he do? He enacted mercy because he knew what those guys' intent was. And he said, hey, have at it. Go ahead. You, without sin, throw the first stone. What happened? All turned around and walked away. Woman says, wow, Jesus. And he says, man, where'd your accusers go? Now there are none, Lord. So he doesn't let her off the hook, does he? Neither do I. But, law, go and said no more. But he threw mercy in there as opposed to just the letter of the law. Stoner. Jesus tells his disciples, you'll know what to speak when they bring you before the authorities. Man, I'm going to tell you what, I'd have a prepared speech. Paul says everything is if received with thanksgiving and gratitude, even meat sacrificed to idols? All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Do you get my point? God wants us so close to him, and so having meditated on the scriptures, that our understanding is driven from him. Now, again, make sure you guys hear me clearly. Rules and regulations have their place and they are to be obeyed. But that is not the end all. The end all is two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second one is like and unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You guys ever heard of the book, When Helping Hurts? A lot of us in here have read it. Basically, the idea is that there are times when if we follow the rules to help somebody, we're actually hurting them because of circumstances and other things in that person's life that God is aware of, like Jesus and the Pharisees. He knew the intent of their heart. teaches rules of principles. Love your neighbor. Neighbor well. 
but they do so under the freedom and the context and the outplaying of preferences in neighboring. Love your neighbor as yourself, have a garden club, have a barbecue, throw horseshoes on your front lawn, invite them over to go swimming. Again, I, I hope I'm making myself clear. Rules are important, principles are important, but preferences only come as we relish ourselves before the feet of the Master. And we know his mind. Christ's confrontations with the religious leaders often or always, I'm not sure, centered on three things in my mind. The religious leaders misunderstanding, misinterpreting the scriptures misapplying them or adding their own little addendum to it. Look at Matthew 12, 9 through 12. He went out there, went out from there and entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? So that they might accuse him. They didn't care about the law. They wanted to accuse Christ. The intent is what happened there. The intent of their heart was not to come to understanding. Lord, like, man, I got to work on Sunday because I got to feed my family. How do I do that and keep the Sabbath? That's not what they were asking. They wanted to accuse him. They were trying to get a noose around him. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, already committed adultery. Act intent. You don't have to commit the act to have a wicked intent and to sin. And this one, just wow. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We don't talk about tithe much in our church, so I'm going to just give you a real quick scenario. Tithe's an Old Testament concept where as you received blessings from the Lord, crops, animals, finances, land, whatever these things were, as an act of worship and cherish to the Father who gave them to you, you would return a portion of them, the first portion, not the crippled animal or not the rotten tomatoes or not the land that didn't perk. You gave them of your first fruits. And so Jesus is saying, that the Pharisees would give if they had 10 oregano plants or 10 cumin plants. Okay, one goes to the Lord. They have cows. One goes to the Lord. He says, you're doing that, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Go back to the woman caught in the act of adultery. They had the law right, but not the intent of this thing. And then Jesus says... Man, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. You know, I've been trying to think of like a, another great like analogy or parable for that, and I, I just don't got one. I read back in the commentaries, a gnat was unclean, so unlawful for Israelites to eat. So they put a little cloth over their wine when they were drinking it to make sure it strained out a gnat. 
But like, think with me. Okay, I'm not gonna eat a gnat, but I'm gonna eat a camel? Like, just, just, just think of the dynamic tension between those two things. Is calling them to. Woe to scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate. Inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And in my mind, I see this thing as two different things. Flesh, spirit. Outside of the cup looks cool. Inside's rotten. If you guys looked at my and Betty's checkbook and see how much money we give away, you guys would probably pat us on the back. Hey, good job. Check the box. Outside of the cup is white. Plate looks clean, right? But you guys aren't there when I write the check. Do I do so grumbling? Why do I got to give 10%? Is it 10% of grosses or 10% of net? Do, do I got to tithe on bonus checks? You guys get the point? We all probably look pretty cool. But the reality is we got to make sure that the inside of the cup is clean. That our intents are pure before Jesus. Okay, I mentioned earlier principles and preferences. Again, for the missions team and maybe some of you guys that are new. MacAv, we got a little binder, 28 documents in it. These documents are based on scriptural principles. Those scriptural principles are, enumer- are elaborated by pastors and elders. We use them in our discipleship process to instruct one another. So we're speaking the same language. So we got the same ideas. What, what is tithing? How do you love your neighbor? What does it mean to be born again? Who's the Holy Spirit? What do I do with finances? What about social justice? So we talk about all these things. One of the documents, Betty's in my favorite one, it's called gray areas. And there's a component in there that talks about principles and preferences. A principle is the golden nugget of God's word, and the preference has to do with who you and I, people in community, different personalities and all that. Perfect example. What does the scripture say about alcohol? Does it say do not drink? No. It says don't get drunk. So there's people here who drink in this community, and there's people who choose to abstain. That's a preference. The principle is don't get drunk. Preference is based on who you are, what your environment was, how you were raised, a a variety of topics. The idea is that we don't make or we don't claim that our preferences are God's principles and lay them on somebody else. I beat the drum hard on this one because I believe that as an individual, that idea is critical for me as I grow in Christ. But I think it's more critical as a uh, cornerstone of the unity and diversity, unity in the midst of diversity chant that MacAv says. For the missions team, that's our rah-rah song. You go to a football game, you hear their song. Our song is unity in the midst of diversity. And this principle, this idea gives life to that. Look around you. Blacks, whites, Asians, young, old, middle class, upper class. Man, we got everybody here. And we can live in communion and community as principles are our guidepost. So, I've got permission, she's not here, but for those of you who know 
Bobby Simpson. What do her and I have in common? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I'm white. I'm old. Got a small family. Was raised in the suburbs. Got a small family. Bobby's black, single, bigger family, raised in the city, employee. Man, worlds apart. And you guys could name another 50 things different. There is white plight. Sin in the suburbs, guys. Betty and I lived in a sinful community before we came down here. Happy white, happy white town. There's sin in Detroit. Black plight. What's my point? My point is, Bobby and I probably couldn't be from opposite or ex uh, ends of the spectrum. But Christ is our cornerstone. So at Mac Life, when Bobby and I sit down, and we're talking about Democrats and Republicans, we're talking about welfare and entitlement, we're talking about Obama or Reagan or Bush, unity in the midst of diversity. We can stand up, and she can want to slap me, but we're going to walk away arm in arm because principles of Christ as our cornerstone and the doctrines of the gospel are what we anchor our lives and our souls on and in, not whether I'm a Republican and she's a Democrat. Created and empowered as individuals, man, please, please hear this. Created and empowered as individuals by God himself, that's the joy of community. It rocks that Bobby and I are that different. And we're buddies. We'll walk together down one narrow path of righteousness. We can still hold our principles secure as the gospel dictates we do. But we hold loosely our preferences that in the midst of one-on-one -on -one discipleship, in the midst of Mac group, in the midst of Mac life, Sunday morning, other social gatherings, our preferences are molded and shaped and sharpened, changed. We grow, we adapt as we have hard conversations about the truth of life in Detroit and in the world. So if, if I can, I, I just want to condense and coordinate what I've been telling you guys to make sure I, I hope I hit this thing right. God gives the Ten Commandments, they're abstract by nature, so he gave examples of case law to clarify. No peanut butter in my desserts, please, for Pastor Leon. Not that man, hear, hear me, church. Since day one, God is interested in the heart. Compare Cain and Abel's sacrifice it wasn't about the sacrifice, it was about the intent of their heart. Or look at the example we have in the gospel of the Pharisee, and I think they call him a publican. Pharisee says, hey man, I am glad I am not like 
Bobby Simpson. I tithe. I fast. I'm an elder. And the publican couldn't even look up to heaven. He bowed his head, said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The things that the Pharisees said were true. He checked the boxes. God, here's my report card. Not like him. But what's the whole point? Whitewashed cup? Outside look good. Hey, man, that dude fasts. I see him walking down the street fasting. Outside of the cup was clean. Plate was clean. But the inside was full of dead man's bones, as the Scripture says. Through his resurrection, his death, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and because we've been given a heart transplant, according to Ezekiel 36, we can grasp God's will in the areas of principle. But again, I think I've been clear, more importantly in my mind is the working out of those things where the rubber meets the road. With a heart made pure by God himself, we have not only the ability, but the power to act righteously and in a manner that's in harmony with who God has created us. You know, one last thing, when you think about the point that I'm trying to make, verse 6 says, slave wants to stay with you, take him over to doorpost, put it all through his ear. What happens if he didn't have an awl? He had a nail. What happens if he didn't have an and it was a window? Okay? The intent's there. Treat him righteously. As I was coming up with an application, man, I struggled, struggled, struggled. I, I couldn't think of one. Last night, so this is what I wrote out. I'd ask you guys, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to make a conscious decision to ask the Holy Spirit, whom God sent directly to you and I, Jesus left so he could come for a reason to not only clarify the intent of our hearts, but the outplaying of the precepts and laws and rules. So pray to ask the Holy Spirit for his wisdom, his guidance, and his discernment as you read his word. You know, I brought up earlier, Mac. Eric, Leon, leadership is always saying unity and diversity, neighbor well, neighbor well, neighbor well, neighbor well. We don't care how you do it. We don't care how you do it. We don't care how you do it. You bring an idea to those guys and usually say, praise the Lord, have at it. The outplaying of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, has many different faces, but it has one principle. Loving the Lord your God, loving your neighbor as yourself. So we're going to take offering.